0: about a girl is a production of iheart radio and double elvis you know about david bowie artist alien chameleon phenomenon the man who fell to earth and pioneered glam rock and who never stopped changing throughout all the years but this is not about david bowie this is about Angie Bowie, self-described architect of lifestyles whose wild spirit and radical style inspired the interstellar gender-bending experimentations that would propel her husband to superstardom. This story is about a girl. first time she ever saw his face, it was in a Polaroid on the wall of an A&R man from Mercury Records she was screwing at the time. She was hoping the A&R man might give her a job, she'd met him by screwing his boss, and she really needed a job, preferably with an American company, because her father had cut her off and she was in London with only a student visa. Instead, he took her to dinner at the roundhouse where the pretty young man from the Polaroid was on stage playing guitar. The A&R man was scouting David Bowie, as the guitarist called himself. Angie could see why. David had potential. His songs weren't bad. And he was very pretty. There was something odd about his eyes, though, that made you look at him longer than you looked at other pretty young men. It made you want to study him. She realized that she'd heard his voice before. On the radio, at least every other day, a song called Space Oddity about an astronaut getting lost in space. It was the summer of 1969, and the world was preparing to send men to the moon. The timing couldn't have been better. She saw him again at King Crimson's party at the speakeasy. David worked his way through the room, and Angie noticed something else. Everyone stood up to talk to him when he approached, rather than let him crouch down. They looked at him like he was important. Angie began to look at him that way, too. He was born Davy Jones, he told her. But that was sadly taken. Angie laughed. She doubted that anyone could confuse this man with the other Davy Jones, the imitation mop-top and singer from The Monkees, a man who probably had never had an impure or original thought in his life. That Davy was a mother and father's wet dream of the kind of man their daughter would bring home, the kind that would bring flowers and help with the dishes after. She could understand why he would change his name. By the end of the night, Angie knew that she was done fucking the A&R man. She took David home instead. They were casual at first. They had sex and talked and fought. She tested him by throwing herself down the stairs at the hostel where she lived. He only stepped over her on his way out and told her to call him if she was still alive in the morning. Cold she thought was something like approval. Then one night, he was sick and asked her to look after him. Sitting on his bed, he played her his tapes. It was the first time she'd really listened to his music, not just catching it in bits and pieces, but hearing it entire. And she realized he wasn't just writing the facile pop love song she was used to. David's lyrics were cryptic, apocalyptic, heretical, mystical. They were science fiction. Angie believed in all sorts of things, including the efficiency of shagging your way to the top. But she believed in aliens. Light people, she called them. Radiant beings who either inhabited the most brilliant or the most inspired of humans. David, she decided, was one of them. It wasn't such a strange thing to believe in London in 1969 when men first walked on the moon and the odd-eyed boy she was falling for was writing songs about astronauts and starmen. He could be her meal ticket. He could be the love of her life. Angie was fine with either one. Things fell into place quickly after that. Angie found a flat for the two of them. It was in an old Victorian mansion called Haddon Hall, which they would share with a wide assortment of other colorful characters, artists, and musicians. Angie was his first listener when he was composing, his interlocutor on the subjects that fascinated him mythology and theater, gender and mind. When he met with record execs, Angie was by his side, narrow-eyed, playing the bad cop. When his father died, she put up with sleeping in a room with his mother for weeks while he mourned in the cramped family home. At the end of that time, she offered him a deal. They'd stay together as a couple and work to make him a pop star. Then it would be her turn. His fame would propel her to a career as an actress. He thought about it. Is it all right, he asked, that I'm not in love with you? I can deal with that, she told him. I can deal with anything. It was true that she needed British citizenship, and so marrying a Brit was useful. But that wasn't the only reason she accepted his proposal. And it was true that she was against marriage, at least the traditional kind, but this wouldn't be a traditional marriage. Angie liked it that way. She especially liked that they'd still fuck other people. It was better not to be tied down, to sleep with any man or woman you fancied without expectations and still have someone to go home to at the end of the day. She wouldn't have expected David to be faithful anyway. Men never were. And she made a game of trying to sleep with anyone he had his eye on before he got to them or after. When she fell pregnant, she wasn't sure how she felt about becoming a mother. But luckily, when their son was born, who they called Zoe, David turned out to be a much better parent than she could ever dream of being. And she was happy to let him take the lead. David was still struggling to get the world to notice his music. And that was why he was going to wear a dress on the cover of his next album, The Man Who Sold the World, posing on a Victorian fainting couch at Haddon Hall. It turned heads, but it didn't sell only cemented David's image as an enigmatic oddball. As far as Angie was concerned, though, that was a valuable bonus. They'd taken another creative step forward. Iggy or Ziggy, David asked her one afternoon after putting their son down for a nap. What? Angie asked, looking up from the magazine she was reading. David sat next to her. For my stage name. Iggy's taken, Angie said, aware of her husband's fascination with Iggy Pop. But her interest was piqued. As their son slept, he began to tell her a story of an alien from Mars. It was golden. It was July 1972. Angie was watching makeup artists prime her husband for primetime television. Not that he wasn't ready. His hair red, his face white, he wore a sparkly jumpsuit. His bandmates looked the part too. They weren't David Bowie and his backing band. They were Ziggy Stardust and Spiders from Mars. Once they were ready, they began to perform. And once they got to Starman, the single released three months earlier, something special happened. As he sung a line, He looked straight into the camera, as if he was speaking directly to everyone watching at home. Oh, that was good. Angie couldn't even see what people at home were seeing, and she knew that it was good. And of course, she enjoyed seeing the costumes she'd helped sell on the other members of the band. Creating their extraterrestrial look had been Angie's task while David had gotten to work writing. From the time that he'd begun, Angie knew this album was going to be special. The songs were the best he'd yet written, and the concept of performing it all as an alien rock star was extraordinary. David Bowie was well on his way to becoming the hottest thing in music. Angie thought with satisfaction that he never would have thought of this on his own. Certainly, he'd been interested in gender and science fiction and the art of mime before she met him. But it had been her who had put it all together to make something new. Something glamorous, larger than life. This was the stuff that rock stars were made of. In fact, it was their comment on rock stardom itself. This was art. Early in the performance, he'd put his arm around his guitarist, Mick Ronson. It was a simple act, but a calculated one. A few months earlier, David had given an interview to the magazine Melody Maker and told the reporter he considered himself gay, said he always had been. It had been Angie's idea. What did gay mean anyway? Telling the papers he was gay was a way of sticking it to the squares, the straights, and at the same time, telling off the old closeted queens who ran so much of the music industry and thought they knew what was best for David's career. And the declaration that Bowie was gay, despite having a wife and child, just made him that much more intriguing to the fans he quickly found himself accumulating. They were young and old. Men, women, gay, straight. The fluidity and mystery of David himself was a part of what made his music resonate in the way that it did. Anyone who had ever felt like an outcast in life could see a little bit of themselves in him. And the world always seemed to make a lot of outcasts. The year after the Ziggy Stardust album came a Sane*. insane. On it was a song that David said he'd written about her. It wasn't exactly a traditional love song, but still. It was called The Prettiest Star, and the lyrics described how they would rise together. It was impossible not to be moved by it. Furthermore, it confirmed Angie's perception of herself as a driving creative force, pushing David to think bigger and bigger. But she was starting to realize great risks she'd taken in turning her husband into her primary creative project. If they separated, he'd walk away with the whole endeavor. It was him. It was, she thought, nearly time to move on to the second part of their agreement, making her a star as well. It was her turn. She tried. She modeled. She even tried acting. None of it got very far. If Angie could help David reach his full potential, maybe that had to be enough but it meant being tied to him indefinitely. Zoe was two years old now, talking and showing signs of his own unique personality. They took him on a tour with them to Japan, where he rode with them on the bullet train to Hiroshima and napped while his father tried on the spectacular kabuki outfits made by a Japanese designer. It was nice to feel like a real family, Angie thought. In the next couple of years, David's fame continued to soar there were tours of America. And it wasn't just the music people were drawn to, it was the spectacle of getting to see him live. For the duration of the show, you really forgot that beneath all of the costumes and makeup and set dressing was just an ordinary group of men. You really felt like you were witnessing the musical talents of a ragtag group of aliens. In the Ziggy Stardust era, David always ended the show with the song Five Years. Ziggy's warning that the Earth only had five years left. Sometimes it was hard not to feel like that was so. These days, Angie thought, you never know. You had to live every day like it was the last. By the mid-1970s, Angie Bowie wasn't sure of a lot of things. She wasn't sure where David stood. She wasn't sure where she stood. Whether their marriage had a shot of lasting. How much longer David could keep being Ziggy, or his Ziggy Goes to America persona, Aladdin Sane. And if not, what would he do and where would he take his career next? The more success he had, the more he was trapped being anything but himself. Not that much earlier, it seemed like nothing could bring them down. David and his band were on top of the world and it was fucking with his head these shifting personas vying for space with the real David, and the fine line between genuine success and an exaggerated projection of it. A lot of the phenomenon part of it had been cooked up by the publicity team. Limousines, fancy hotels, and pursuing photographers. Mobs of fans followed them wherever they went, in the pantomime of something that could only be compared to Beatlemania. Not that there weren't fans, there most definitely were, but it wasn't anything like the public wanted to think it was. The reasoning was that if David Bowie was perceived to be a huge star, others would wonder what kind of rock they'd been living under. They'd buy his records and buy tickets to his concerts to see what all the fuss was about. And while it had worked to a degree, David's star was bona fide, there was no question about that. There was also one reality that they had to contend with. Due to their lifestyle of excess, the expense of the grand theatrical shows, and general mismanagement, they were broke. It was one more reason for him to escape, into drugs, music, another persona, affairs, or some new obsession. David Jones, whomever he had been, was more and more remote. As the 70s waned to a close, the relationship that Angie had with David became less like a partnership, and more like bad roommates who argued vigorously, if they acknowledged each other at all and they were both seeing other people. While they always had, they'd stopped fighting about it or caring much at all about what the other was up to. They made their own plans. They'd quit trying to make it work. David was too strung out on different drugs most of the time to have an actual conversation about anything. When the time finally came to divorce, the primary question was what to do about their son, and it was obvious who the better parent would be. Their son was nine now, and he plainly preferred his father to his mother. Beyond that, Angie told herself that maybe the responsibility of taking care of him would force David to get his act together. And when the divorce was finalized in 1980, David got full custody. Angie got half a million pounds and a non-disclosure agreement. I'm going to live with you, Zoe asked his father as they discussed it all in the living room. David gave him a weak smile. This was the right choice. Angie was sure. Whatever shape David was in, she had to acknowledge that she'd never felt like a proper mother. Angie swallowed, suddenly feeling like an intruder. By now, she managed before shutting the door. She didn't look back. The next decade seemed to drift quickly through her. Angie tried to move on with her life, but that didn't exactly keep her away from interviews with anyone who wanted to ask her what it was like to be married to David Bowie once her gag order expired. She'd also kept his name, and though many accused her of trying to capitalize on her ex-husband's fame, that wasn't it. She'd helped create David Bowie. She'd worked for her name. She kept it even after she met someone else, a musician who'd similarly fashioned a more memorable stage name, Drew Blood, from the much more boring and average Andrew Lipka. Angie did her best to start over with him, settling in Tucson, Arizona, Even as she got older, after she had another child, a daughter named Stasha, she found herself thinking about the life she'd left behind. Throughout a series of reinventions, David Starr never really waned. With his music and image omnipresent, he was never far from her thoughts. She didn't regret things, necessarily, but she still felt a void. Sometimes, she thought of her son, and hoped that whatever he and David were up to, they were well. Often, she was asked why she didn't fight harder to hold on to any sort of custody of Zoe. And while she understood where this question came from, she was never gonna be one of those women who used her child to get back at her ex. Even if she and David hadn't worked as a couple, that didn't mean she had to drag Zoe into it. Doing that, she reasoned, would have left Zoe with scars for life. In 1992, she read that David got married again, and this time, it seemed like true love. In the newspaper, she saw a picture of David and his new wife, a famous model, next to their son, who wasn't a child anymore. Goodness, he was a man now, 21 years old, just about the age that David had been when he and Angie had first met, all those years ago. Time really went so fast. Angie hadn't seen her son in close to 10 years. Their brief bouts of contact with each other were unproductive, and now he did not seem to want a relationship with her. That's just the way it is, Angie thought. No one's fault. Not that it mattered anymore. After all, as old as Angie sometimes felt, she knew that she still had a lot of life left to live. David was off loving his. He had a new family and was still making music, still filling stadiums. As her ex-husband moved definitively into rock and roll legend territory, Angie hardly felt like she had an identity of her own, and there was a part of her that still felt like the 19-year-old she'd been when she first met David, dreaming of outer space and beings of light. Her relationship with Drew faded away and she met someone else, deciding this time, maybe it would work better with someone outside the limelight. His name was Michael, He was an engineer, and that was perfect. She was forging a new career as a writer, too, parlaying a juicy memoir into more thoughtful studies on gender and sexuality. Maybe the future would turn out to be bright after all. It was a cold January day, and as Angie watched the snow fall outside, she had a good feeling about the year ahead. It had been a bumpy road lately. She hadn't seen David or her son, who now went by Duncan and was an acclaimed film director in over 35 years. She still thought of them occasionally, and if they were happy, she was happy for them. She still went by Angie Bowie and was still criticized as an opportunist for it. Angie saw what people wrote about her on the internet. She couldn't imagine these people, whomever they were, saying some of these things they said to her face. After all this time though, She was used to it and could easily shrug it off. These random internet trolls didn't really know her. They thought they understood the relationship that she and David had because they liked his music. They identified with him. But there was a lot more to it than they would ever know. She kept the name because it was her name, as simple as that. She'd found love again too and had let go of David a long time ago. It's not like she had time to be living in the past anyway. She'd recently been selected as a contestant on the TV show Celebrity Big Brother, where a group of public personalities lived in a house together. Each week, one would be evicted. Angie had done it because she thought it might be interesting, and so far, it was. Nothing like she'd ever been a part of in her life. And sure, she didn't mind being back in the public eye. That was part of it. Just as she watched the snow, she heard a knock at the door. Angie? She heard the producer's voice. Do you have a moment? Angie walked to her door and opened it. Of course. They moved into the hall, into a very quiet spot. Maybe one of the only places in the house where there were no cameras. Where no one else would hear them. David Bowie passed away today, the producer said. If you need to leave the house, we understand. Angie's head was spinning. "'No, I think I'll stay,' she replied after a moment that seemed like an eternity. The producer gave her a pitying look. "'We thought you ought to know,' he said. "'Let us know if you need anything.' He walked off, leaving Angie alone in the hallway. David Bowie. Dead. Once in a generation or so, people came around that were so larger than life that you forgot that they could die. That we all would die. Even though they hadn't spoken in over 35 years, Angie had always taken comfort in knowing that he was out there somewhere. Suddenly, all of their fights didn't matter anymore. They'd had a lot of wonderful memories together. They'd made a child. A week later, she left the Big Brother house. She just couldn't do it anymore, she told everyone else. The competition, which had seemed so exciting just a week earlier, had lost all of its luster. For days, her ex-husband's face was all that was on the news, on Facebook. His music was all she heard on the radio. She didn't hate it. One night, Angie found herself listening to it too. Lying in bed, she couldn't sleep. She searched for one specific song on her phone. And she pushed play. Sometime later, she fell asleep, drifting off to the voice of her ex-husband from all those years ago. David Bowie was to the 1970s what the Beatles were to the 1960s. He encouraged generations of people to dream wildly, showing them it was okay to be different, to be yourself, or whomever you wanted to be. But this isn't about them. This is about Angie Barnett, who inspired David Bowie to be different, to be himself, or whomever he wanted to be, who believed he could touch the stars before he reached out to them himself. This is About a Girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created, written, and narrated by me, Eleanor Wells, with additional writing and editing by S. I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer and mixer, and provides music and editorial support. Audio editing by Matt Tahaney. If you liked the show, please subscribe to About a Girl on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave a rating and review. For more great shows from Double Elvis, visit DoubleElvis.com. That's DoubleElvis.com.